Welcome to the People First Leaders Podcast. My name is Doug Utberg, Marine Corps veteran, founder CEO of ExpenseReviews.com, and I have absolutely nothing to sell you. The purpose of this commercial-free show is to honor the leaders who approach life as go-givers by putting their people and customer value first. Stick around until the end of the show, and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in about 20 minutes. Let's go. We have John Briggs with us today, and we're going to be talking about taxes, government, and the debt spiral. And of course, this is all a part of the psychopathic vortex, which at the time of this recording just recently released, but there's probably going to be a few episodes since it uh, first came out. But yeah, so of course, you know, one of the things that I like to do is since I'm a kind of a nerdy guy, I track the total amount of debt outstanding and compare it to gross domestic product from reports from around the BEA and St. Louis Fed. And one of the things I saw is that I think in Q2 of 2022, there was $92 trillion of debt outstanding from all sources. And so one of the things, you know, and of course, uh, John's specialty is on the tax side, but I think this is all related because the debt is expanding so fast. You're not just federal debt, but all debt is expanding so fast that I think that either A, there's going to need to be, uh, there's going to continue to be a lot of inflation. There's going to be a lot more taxes, or we're going to see a wave of defaults and possibly multiples. But anyway, John, don't let me go on too much. <laughs> yeah, it's, as you were saying that, I go back to, it reminded me of a couple of years ago when the government was pumping mm-hmm. a bunch of money into the economy and everyone was really happy at the time. Well, I, was, well, I should say the majority of people were happy. Yeah. Um, some of us realized like, okay, but someone's got to pay the piper at some point. How's that going to happen? And with my background, knowing that every two years I have job security because politicians run on tax promises, yep. they're going to have to have the American public put that bill. That's their yep. general approach to how do we fix this? Oh, crap. We put too much money into the economy. Oh, we'll just, we'll get it back through taxes. Yeah. Well, and, you know, because, of course, right, there's more than one way to get money back through taxes, too. One way is the direct rate way, which is to either add new taxes, raise tax rates or whatever. And the other way is to monetize the debt through the Federal Reserve and create inflation, which is what's causing the mountain of angst right now. And incidentally, that's actually one of the things that really concerns me, because I think we were just talking about in the pre-show. What I was just noticing was, I think it was in Q2 of 2022, for every dollar of gross domestic product growth from Q1, there were $3.65 of debt growth. And that trend kind of continued back. I think the the, the ratio topped out at $4.15 of debt growth in, uh, I think it was, oh, no, uh, never mind. Q2 of 2020 was an anomaly because GDP shrank by $1.9 trillion. But just imagine though, like, what would happen if households ran their life that way, right? Like, Oh, I made fifty thousand dollars, and oh, I also increased yeah. my debt by one hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's basically what you just said. Yes, right. I mean, basically, what could possibly go wrong? Right. That sounds like a great strategy. And because th- this is, you know, one of the many things I'm really passionate about is because, of course, right. You know, I'm very much of the libertarian bent. You know, not unlike a lot of other people in kind of the business podcast potosphere or whatever you want to call it. But inflation is the thing that really concerns me because inflation disproportionately impacts the people who are young and poor 
with who statistically tend to be disproportionately young. So basically what inflation does is it just drops a big hammer on the younger generations. And considering the fact that the younger generations have already had an anvil dropped on their head from all the COVID lockdowns that were put in place to supposedly protect people who are older, and the numbers now show really didn't move the needle at all. It's kind of a double whammy. Yeah, it's funny as you're saying that, I was remembering a video I watched, and it was like a congressional hearing, mm -hmm. and they had an expert. He wasn't part of the company, but they were looking at like Fortune 100 companies' growth. Yeah. And so they were laying out, okay, here's the scenario we've happened. You're saying cash was tight or you had lower supplies or whatever, and therefore you had to raise prices. Well, then wouldn't you expect that your net income would also drop based on that? But here we see that there's a hockey stick chart of massive growth. So is your opinion as an expert that companies are, these Fortune 100 companies are profiting off of the inflation and building that gap between the poor and the upper class? Well, the main reason is because these Fortune 100 largely, you know, these enormous companies, you know, the thing is they may not have straight monopoly pricing power, but they have monopolistic pricing power. And, you know, so basically they have the power to pass along cost increases and then some and to extremely large payrolls. And they're usually they're protected by some form of regulatory protection that prevents competition from from going in and beating them out. At my heart, I'm a capitalist, but I think what a lot of people really don't realize is that the current manifestation of capitalism that exists in the kind of US and Europe is not really capitalism because as I say, capitalism is based on a in voluntary exchange in a free market. We don't have either of those. We have a tremendous amount of basically coercive exchanges, largely because there's not really a free market. You either have government mandates or you have like behemoth mega corporations who essentially don't have competitors. Yep. We all remember the stories from a decade ago, right? When the government first bailed out car manufacturing companies and then they bailed out financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And how do those companies take the bailout? They gave the leadership people- yep massive bonuses, even though, oh, so we're not going to hold them accountable. Who do you think was in charge of the, this debacle? But yeah, too big to fail, I think was the slogan that was being thrown out at the time. And unfortunately, it, it is a reality of what- of Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, you know, nowadays it's like, oh, what, like a trillion dollar bailout package? I mean, that feels like peanuts now. Yeah. What'd you say? 97? How much? How trillion? $92 trillion is the latest number I have from the Fed. Yeah, that's all sources, right? That's, you know, Fed, state, local, private, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, still. Well, because the thing I'm that I'd like the back of the envelope math that I do on that, right, is I'm like, okay, you know, if you do $92 trillion at an average interest rate of even, let's say, 5%, right, that's going to be four and something trillion dollars a year and just an in interest, just an in interest. Well, so at some point that's going to stack up to where companies, municipalities, et cetera, are going to start defaulting. And if you start seeing defaults, especially if you start seeing a lot of defaults, the first thing that's going to happen is risk spreads on bonds are going to increase. And so for anybody listening who is not familiar, what happens is, right, the lowest interest rates on bonds are always the government bonds because they basically they're, you know, your payback of principal is guaranteed because the government can print money. And so then what happens is the interest rate that, that gets offered has to increase as the risk of the bond goes up. Well, what ends up happening is as the market, when the market's stable for a long time, the interest rate spread between the most risky and least risky bonds start to compress. 
Well, as soon as the market gets spooked, all of a sudden those interest rates expand. And so now the high yield debt will end up needing to go off at a very high interest rate, which means the price has to come down, which means anybody who was holding this high yield debt is going to be looking at tremendous losses and that could get even more tremendous some of the companies start defaulting, which I think is going to happen. And now, John, I'm getting really nerdy on you here. So take me back into cool guy zone if we need to. But now, do you dork out on the financial markets at all? Not on the financial markets per se. I dork out on the, the tax. Okay. The tax code changes. That's really where my dorkiness will. All right. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll get there in just a second. There's just one story that I, I want to share real quick. So t this morning, what I was doing was I was looking at the implied volatility curves for S&P 500 options. And so, the, like, for example, the way the Black-Scholes model works is that it calculates the value of an option contract, and then the prime variable is usually the implied volatility, which says, you know, how much, you know, what level of volatility is baked into the option price. What happens is that if you look at where the S&P 500 is now, and the implied volatility of options going up or actually the implied volatility goes down, which means that the market thinks that is unlikely to happen. And if you look at the implied volatility for the S&P going down quite a ways, it just goes up, the volatility goes up a hockey stick. So what that means is that options for the S&P going down are getting bid up quite a bit. So the proverbial wise guys in Wall Street have already tipped their hand. They've told us what they think is going to happen, and it is not a V-shaped recovery. There is not a fast bounce back. The smart money out there thinks that this thing is going to last a while and that we haven't hit the bottom. Interesting. But anyway, I'm just utterly and completely nerding out here. Let's turn this a little bit because you were talking about nerding out on ways to save on taxes, which is an odd dichotomy because, of course, in order for the government to finance its operations, you know, it needs to pull in tax revenue. At the same time, there's a massive pile of tax incentives, tax saving strategies, et cetera, that are all perfectly legal that can be implemented by people who are so inclined as to reduce their tax exposure. Totally. There was a judge. His name is called Learned Hand. Yes. Very interesting name, right? Love it. Sat on the U.S. District D.C. Court, uh, like the Supreme Court, not like the yeah. highest Supreme Court, but yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. I've, I've heard this story before, but yeah. keep going. But a very high level judge. And he, in one of his rulings back in like I mean, 1920 or 1940, I, I always yeah. get those mixed up, but he said, look, the reality is, is there's tax avoidance and there's tax evasion. Yeah. So he gave a scenario where they lived in DC, there's the Potomac River and there's a toll bridge which gives you a more direct route from Virginia mm -hmm. into Washington, D.C., and you can pay a toll. Or you can drive an hour out of the way, and there's a free bridge. Mm -hmm. And so he said, look, if I drive on the toll bridge and don't pay the toll, that's tax evasion. Yeah, for that, I should go to jail. And I completely agree. But he also said, I have an option to drive out a little bit out of my way and take a free bridge and not pay any toll. That's called tax avoidance. And we should be looking for every possible way to avoid taxes. Yep. Coming from like a high level judge, I'm like, that is such a perfect example. The toll bridge, the free bridge, the tax code for, I mean, it's 76, 77,000 pages and every time the yep. election it gets bigger, it really, you think about it as there's probably 10,000 pages of rules and there are 70,000 pages of exceptions. That sounds about right. 
Well, okay. So what would you say is probably the, I'm going to hit you with two of them. What would you say is the number one biggest tax strategy or tool that people don't take advantage of that they should? And then one, and, and then what would you say is the biggest one that's kind of hidden or secret or that is out there, but people really don't know about? And it could be the same thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll clarify this with yeah. prior... In well, let's clarify with this. This show is not rendering financial advice. Please talk to your CPA yeah, yeah, before you implement any strategies. For, for sure. Great disclaimer. In 2018, there was a tax reform bill that was passed. And prior to that, W-2 only, like if that was your only source of income, you had some possible strategies. Uh-huh. And since 2018 tax reform, if you're straight W-2 mortgage interest, there's the tax code yeah. pretty black and white, right? But for people who make 1099 income or those who invest in some of these things mm-hmm. to make themselves business owners, that's really where the game is played with the IRS. Yep. And we also look at it from the standpoint of the tax code is kind of just telling us, here's the game the government wants us to play. Whether we want to or not, whether we agree with their statements or not positions or not, they're basically saying by giving you tax breaks on certain things like oil drilling, real estate investments, things like that. We want you to do that as a country. Therefore, we're giving you incentive to do those things. That's one way to look at the tax code is really just what does the government want us to do? And they're telling us what they want us to do based on incentive. Now, it doesn't mean you have to do it if you don't agree, but anyway, let's start. So with that being said, my tax strategies are for those who get the type of business income Mm -hmm. because the code defines you if you get a 1099 of any sort, uh, well, I shouldn't say of a miscellaneous or an NEC, which is the new, you are by definition a business owner. Yep. Which then means all of the tax code sections that apply to business owners that apply to the Microsofts and the Amazons and the Apples mm-hmm. of the world also apply to you. So let's take advantage of them. Well, yeah. And I'll append to that by saying that at least in my view, the business owner side is is really where the action is at. And there's one very, very simple line that has a profound impact and that is that according to the tax code, businesses are allowed to deduct expenses that are ordinary and necessary for business operation. That's not very descriptive. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. Yeah. You're taking my line. Exactly. <laughs> I say that all the time. I'm like, okay, that is the exact definition in the tax code. What is ordinary and necessary? Well, guess what? If you ask one question to 10 CPAs, mm-hmm. you'll get 15 different answers. Yes. It's like economists. Uh-huh. It is no different with IRS auditors. Yep. Based on their how are they feeling for the day, I mean, they have all the authority and none of the competency. And so if you ask a question like, well, what's ordinary and necessary, they're going to give you a different interpretation as well. So you have one question, you get CPAs and auditors involved, and you have an exponential amount of possible outcomes. So to your point, it's way too vague. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a client who made really good money with a network marketing business and he spent $100,000 on a belt buckle and he wanted to write it off. (laughs) And I said, I don't think this is considered ordinary or necessary, but he did, right? We have different definitions. Yes. So the code then, sometimes what happens is when the code isn't specific enough, the IRS will issue what they call treasury regulations. Mm -hmm. And in those regs, 
they'll help clarify some of the vagueness that was initially written. So what do they do? They say, okay, let's clarify this. Let's call it anything that's helpful or appropriate. Wow. Good job clarifying ordinary and necessary. Those feel like we not better understanding of what you mean. Right? Same junk. Like, are you kidding me? That yeah. is just as confusing as ordinary and necessary. Thanks for wasting our time. And our tax dollars paid for your time to come up with that stellar answer. Really great job. Yeah. Well, and because what that ultimately means is, I think, generally speaking, you'll have you know, people who fall off the fence either on one side or the other. And I think the gamble is that people will say, okay, you know, ordinary, necessary, I don't really know what it means. So I'm going to be really, really, really conservative in what I write off. And you get other people who say, ordinary, necessary, how do you define that? And they'll be really, really, really aggressive about what they write off. Exactly. Exactly. So, and this actually answers your number, the first question you asked. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you brought it up. Because ordinary, necessary, helpful, appropriate, all very vague words that don't help us. Here's the best way to think about it. And this is the low hanging for every business owner. If I'm spending money, can I relate it to my business? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, it's a write-off. If it's the answer is no, then it's not a business expense. So if it's related to my business, can I relate it to my business? Would I be able to sit in front of an auditor and give a logical story as to why this was needed in order for my business to grow or maintain mm -hmm. or get me out of a trouble spot? So we recommend, especially now, beginning of the year, people are thinking about filing their taxes. Let's have them go through their statements. Be like, okay, was that related to my business? Most of our clients and new clients who do this exercise mm -hmm. will find additional write-offs. That's like, oh yeah, I did purposely go there so that I could learn something and that what I learned was intended to help me be a better business owner. Write that stuff off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's see. So I think, yeah, we just got a little nitty gritty, a little bit tactical, which is some good stuff. Okay. So kind of based on, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of take us back up to like about maybe not 10,000, like 2000 foot level. So kind of based on your vantage point and purview, I mean, I think it's fair to say that taxes are more likely to go up than down. It's been like that for a really long time. And by taxes, I mean, tax rates, availability of, of write-offs, et cetera. And I understand the prediction game is always dangerous, but from your view, what do you think is the most likely change in the tax code that is going to be coming in the next five to 10 years? Understanding that I'm not going to hold you to it. Yep. I don't know how the government is going to get through this problem with the amount of like the inflation problem yeah. without taxing the American public more. They need the money to come back in. There's too much money that's printed. We got to take some of that money out of supply. And in order to do that, taxing people is one way. Like they got to pay for all these literally called entitlement programs. Yep. Blows my mind. Like you ask them, like, usually it's like, are you entitled to something? You want them to say no. Mm -hmm. Yet the government purposely goes out, here's some entitlement programs. Good. That's good parenting. So I think it's going to have to go up. Now, that being said, honestly, like, from a political standpoint, Republicans tend to want to lower taxes. Democrats want to raise taxes. And so depending on who is in office and who's in control of the Senate and the House does also play a factor. So I don't think it's going to be one of these things where it's like a straight line based on who gets elected. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to more of a seesaw, but I do believe the overall trend 
is going to lead more towards people are going to be paying more taxes in the future. Yeah. Well, because like one of the things that I'm actually surprised hasn't happened yet is that so I think the ceiling for FICA on, you know, FICA meaning Social Security and Medicare is currently at like, I think 118,000 or yeah, 100 and something thousand. I'm actually surprised that it hasn't either been significantly raised or just abolished and base and just uncap it. That I figured that would be the first play in the playbook because it wouldn't impact 90% of the electorate, which is what every politician is trying to do is, you know, they want to find yeah. a way to raise tax revenue without impacting the majority of people who vote. Totally. And it's hilarious that they actually stopped and looked at the data instead of having their heads so far up their butts. They would realize that even if they taxed 100% of the one percenters yep. and you took all their income, wouldn't it be. doesn't make a dent. The problem is they're spending too much money. Yeah, that's I mean, that's ultimately the real solution. But yes, they do tend towards like, how do we tax the rich? Yeah. Not looking at the statistics that prove when you tax the rich less the economy will grow because they turn around and want to leverage the money. But instead, if you're pulling the money out of their pocket, they have zero desire to continue to offer wages to other people to grow their businesses because it's like they think, what's the point? You're just going to want to take it all from me. Yeah. Well, we, give me some flexibility yeah. that I'm good. Well, and or I think another way that I like to articulate that same point, right, you know, is because people always talk about, talk about tax shelters. So I'm like, hey, there are infinite numbers of tax shelters available. They just get complex and expensive. And so what happens is if taxes are really high, then for people that have a lot of resources, then tax shelters become very, you know, they end up sheltering more money instead of investing it in business. On the other hand, if taxes are lower, then that then you'd say, well, okay, I can spend all the money and time to do this tax shelter, or I can just put it in my business and go make more money. And so they'll tend to put it in their business and go make more money. Yeah, great. Right you know, so that's, I think that that's one of the things to remember is that when you're talking about people who have access to lawyers, CPAs, and especially, you know, it's like if they can call congressmen and they'll actually pick up the phone, then you're not necessarily going to squeeze more money out of them just by increasing tax rates. What they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, am I better off paying the tax or sheltering my money? And when it shifts to sheltering, they'll shelter more. When it shifts to, when it, when it shifts to just pay the tax, they'll just run their business and pay the tax. That's a bridge that a lot of people don't really draw in their minds. Yeah, no, it's a good point. It's also kind of like, well, let's tax the rich, but then they don't realize it's the rich that are the ones donating to your campaign. It's the rich that are paying for the lobbyists to go get the tax change. Like, that's when it gets into the whole... Yeah. You know, well, and the, the other thing, too, is that, you know, I've always had a, a little bit of a bugaboo with the phrase, the rich. And I'm like, I go, okay, well, so what you're telling me is that an executive vice president at Goldman Sachs say, who earns the same amount as somebody who started up a software company, built it up and took it public. If they make the same amount of money, they're both considered the rich. One person is basically a part of the graft machine that extracts capital from the economy through government fiat. And another one was involved in competitive enterprise. To me, they're not comparable at all. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's really... You have the entrepreneurial rich, I guess, then? Yes. Yeah, exactly. You have your entrepreneurial rich, and then you have your, I don't know what you'd call it, like salaried or whatever. But yeah, to me, the, the, the two aren't comparable at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, uh, well let's see. So I think we've uh, it's been a good conversation so far. Let me ask you a question. Is there a question I should have asked you but didn't? Uh, but giving you a softball here. Yeah, I don't have... I'm just one of those guys. I'm happy to go with the flow. It's been a great conversation. Like When I think about who I am and my own beliefs and political views. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, 
you got to play with the rules that have been established. And unfortunately, whether you think they're corrupt or not, the government, the IRS, the corporations, they're writing most of the rules in which yep. we have to live by in order to grow our wealth. It's unfortunate, but I, I love it when I see someone who's trying to push against the grain and educate and find other ways to maybe get some sort of movement going where those types of people who, in my opinion, are making policy changes that are ruining our country, mm -hmm. that they see a different way and realize it's, there's a better way. Like yeah. that could be more collaboration. Like you said, the true definition of capitalism and a free, actual free yes. market. Like, you go, yes, voluntary exchange and a free market or a competitive market. Those are your two big things is that because in a voluntary exchange type of situation, I would not buy from you unless the benefit to me exceeded what I was paying and you would not sell to me unless the amount that I purchased it for exceeded your cost. That's right. Similarly, in a competitive market, that's also where you know the competitive market is how you have non-coercive transactions is because like, for example, if you were the only place where I can go to get food or fuel then you can pretty much charge whatever you want and I'm kind of stuck paying it. And so I think th those two elements, that voluntary exchange and that competitive market are the things that create the value dynamics. If you take one or both of those out, then you just end up having a highway of graft. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll be interested to see if I get banned from any platforms for this conversation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, you know, didn't mention, mention Andrew Tate at all. So I might be safe, you know, <laughs> I think he, him and Elon are like getting banned from everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. But anyway, yeah, uh, John, well, let everybody know where they can find out more. So our tax firm, our accounting firm's website is insighttax.com mm -hmm. and insight as in to cause to action, often using the phrase to incite a riot. Yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes. Right. Don't worry about that. Yeah. So insighttax.com is the best way. We do try our best to provide good, succinct information on our blog. So if you're looking for some tax tips, we have quite a few uh, that are for free on the website. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, hey, John, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Doug. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the People First Leaders podcast. If you are a successful People First founder or CEO who would like to be on this show, please visit peoplefirstleaders.net forward slash guest. If this interview resonated, would you please share it on social media? Just take a quick screenshot on your phone and post it on your favorite social channel. Then make sure to tag me at Doug Value so I can give you and your business a shout out on a future episode. If you know somebody who'd be a great guest, please tag them on social and include the hashtag PeopleFirstLeaders. I really love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're releasing new content and episodes all the time, so make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any new episodes. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show, and they mean a lot to me personally. And also, I would like to connect with you on social. My handle is at Doug Value, or you can just go to peoplefirstleaders.net where all of the links are posted. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.